Welcome everyone to JCB Art Studio Season 5. Uh, for first-time listeners, I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. On September 30th, Spy Girls comes out. So today is the second in a series of podcasts I am doing in my capacity as the official podcast host for the 2022 Canadian Book Club Award winners. I'm excited to feature these authors. Uh, we just, no particular order, Jane Enright, author of Butterside Up, Craig Colby, the author of All Caps, Caitlin E. Keneally, the author of Healing is Messy, I'm just going to say AF or else I'd have to put a warning on that, this podcast, okay? Um, these authors have shared their souls, and I'm thinking about their stories. And uh, I'm, I'm really proud to be featuring them and having them on the, co- on the podcast because I, I think all of us can learn from their stories. So Jane, Craig, Caitlin, welcome. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. For so happy to be here. Good. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This is a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here in such esteemed company. Now, I want to start off with each with each of you answering this question. And um I'm getting a sense from reading these books. There's a message of healing, of the human condition, of connecting. So starting with Jane, what was the inspiration for your book? The that moment when you thought, what if I write a book about? Let's 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 start with you. Oh wow. Uh well it it didn't I, I first of all, I never grew up thinking I would ever author a book, let alone more than one. And it really was that most terrible year, 365 days of those curveballs out of left field. What's next? Why is this happening? That search for meaning that I think most of us go through when something bad happens to us that we cannot explain. And as I said in chapter four, I felt like I was in the principal's office. I felt like I was going to the principal's office all the time, but I didn't know why I was being reprimanded. So it was really a search for meaning. And it's sort of how do I take lemons and make lemonade and really take my my knowledge of you know, what comes next in the unexpected and not knowing what comes next and turn that into something that's good after something that's not so good. So it was a search for meaning for me. Good, good. Now, Craig, what what made you decide that you're going to write this, write this book, um, all caps? I had never would have considered writing a, a memoir. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't have considered writing a book about hats. Uh, I'll give you the short story for all of this. Is during the pandemic when all of my work disappeared. I'm a television executive producer, and uh, not only did my work disappear, but a lot of the places that I worked disappeared. My regular customers. So I would sit down in the morning. I, you know, I didn't want to wait. I was jumpstarting everything. But I had two racks of hats. I knew I had a lot of hats. And about a week into trying to find ways to make people aware that I'm here and I'm good and all of that stuff, I decided I was going to wear a different hat every day until the pandemic was lifted, until the lockdown was lifted. So I took the first hat. Uh, and took a picture of it and put it on Facebook and didn't really think anything of it. And later that day, all these in the comments, all these people had posted hats of their own. So every day I would post a hat and we would share hats and it was a way to be connected at a time we were apart. 
And then I also started writing little stories that were with each hat, people I knew and where I bought them and experiences they reminded me of. And it was a way to be connected to my own life. And again, in a time when we were uh, disconnected, but also a reflective time. Uh, and it went on for 125 days. And I was a little embarrassed. I thought I was going to be the crazy hot guy in my uh, television community and it would actually limit my ability to get jobs, not increase it. <laughs> but uh, a funny thing happened is people told me they were sad it was over and that they it had helped them connect during this time. Um, so when people started asking me to write a book, I didn't really see it at first. And then when my mother asked, my mother was a columnist for the paper in Thunder Bay, and she had started a, a Dorothy Colby started a writer's festival in Thunder Bay and had published her own book. And my brother is the opinions page editor of the star, Scott Colby. He had uh, co-authored a best Canadian bestseller with uh, hockey player P.K. Subban's dad, Carl Subban. Yeah. He encouraged me. But when my mom asked, uh, you know, I know she wanted all the things that they had had for me. So that's when I decided to do it. But, you know, deciding to write the book and deciding to write this book are two different things. Uh, I knew that uh, the experiences that came with the book weren't all happy. Yeah. I knew that some were deep. I wasn't sure how deep to go. I wasn't sure how much information to provide. But I knew that what I wanted to do was to write about my life, but make people think about their life mm -hmm. and examine what's the most important, what are the most important things in their lives. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was the trick that I was trying to pull off. Yeah. Well, you, you did good. You did good. And but Caitlin, before I ask you, yeah. it's just before I forget, this podcast came about during the pandemic mm. and my desperate need to connect because of lockdown. And just, I thought I need to talk to humans or, you know, I just need to have that connection. So I didn't think it would become what it became. But here we are. So, Caitlin, Caitlin, yeah. <laughs> what was absolutely your inspiration. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. Now, I've started and stopped plenty of them, but really, the pandemic. Um, I, I'm a clinician. I own my own private practice, and really, my book and my perception is kind of a soft sell on therapy. And so, what I started to think was, well, if we can't get people in the office. I want to have a book that can hang on their coffee table and can be a conversation starter. So I wanted to create something that was tangible and practical and be able to take these larger um, therapeutic topics and break them down for people. So um, I wrote the book um, in the sense of, you know, it's my personal experience, clinical experience intertwined with patient experience. And then each chapter, you have skills and things that you would do in therapy, but that you could do at home as well. So the inspiration really was of what all of you guys are saying too, is connection and meeting people outside of these four walls in a way that feels safe enough, a little bit of fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then also very heavy topics are in there. Um, and when I, the first draft of the book was really an ebook. And the thing that I didn't have in there was any of my personal experience. And I looked at it and I just thought, and I just felt like, okay, Caitlin, you ask people, right? You build trust and rapport and you do this. And so give a little bit of your story. So I didn't want it to be about me, but once I put myself into it, 
um, and was vulnerable in the way that I asked patients to be, I think it really came together. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, so the inspiration again, which is a theme of what you guys are saying too, um, was uh, we were going through a collective trauma and um, we all appear to have found ways to work through that. And I think that that's the beauty in healing too, um, is kind of coming out that other side of it. So really that's kind of the long of the short of how um, my book came to life. And good Excellent. thing it did. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into these these books. So, okay. all caps, Craig's. Uh, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about Craig, uh, be- because you guys, six months from now, someone's going to be listening to this podcast, and that mm-hmm. is also the beauty of podcasts. When I check my analytics, and it's like, wow, I recorded that in 2021, and someone's listening mm-hmm. to it today. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's so cool. All right. All caps written by Craig Colby. Craig is an executive producer, writer, and director of high quality television. His productions have appeared on Discovery Channel, ESPN Plus, TSN, BBC, Smithsonian Channel, I got to watch my asses. You're talking to a girl who, when she was a child, I had a trouble saying ambulance, but I think I'm doing okay. Okay. I'm doing great. CTV, Documentary Channel, Netflix, Prime Video, and Quest, just to name a few. Uh, He has success all over the world. If a country has television sets, they've played one of Craig's shows. Craig owns video production and a consulting company, Colby Vision. He lives in Toronto with his wife, Nancy, and two sons, Shane and Curtis. And you can find out more about Craig and his work at colbyvision.net. And everyone's website will be in the show notes. Okay, Craig, (laughs) the Detroit Tigers home cap. You have touching moments that are attached to each of the hats you write about. And I love the the pictures of them too. Um, Race riots in 1966, 67, Detroit was burning. And then in 1971, your family moves to Canada. Talk to me about that period um, when you were a child, because I think Thinking of what um, Caitlin has written in her book, a lot of what has happened in our childhood carries on as an adult. So talk to me about that period with the Detroit Tigers, what the Detroit Tigers home cap represents. Well, the funny thing about that cap is not even a cap. It's a little plastic helmet. You know, when I was young, you couldn't really get the caps anywhere. When people went to a Tiger game, they get these plastic helmets. Uh, And I saw that helmet, the helmet that I show in the book is not the one we had when we were kids. And I think it was shared between my brothers because my older brother said, Hey, that's, that was my hat, but we all wore it. But I saw it at a Tigers baseball game at America park. And I bought it for my kids because it meant so much to me as a kid, but they never wore it because the thing about that hat for me is it was filled with all those memories and feelings. And it just didn't have that for them. And we have better hats now, but I was uh, born in Minnesota. We moved to Michigan very early. My family's from Michigan. And, you know, the feelings associated with that hat are the feelings associated with innocence and youth and being carefree and carefree, but also 
still aware enough, I knew that there was trouble out there. We knew about the race rights. We knew the problems. And in the middle of all of, of those things, even as a young boy, this big shining light came through, which was the Detroit Tigers winning the World Series in 1968. I was five years old, and I don't remember the games, but I remember the feeling. Remember the feeling the Detroit Tigers had for, for people, that everyone was excited about it. My older brother used to run up to the gas station to try to get an alkaline baseball card. He was the star. His, his nickname was Mr. Tiger. Yeah. You know, the, the name of the team was his nickname. And those were really, really happy, easy times. And, you know, I, my school, when I started school was when busing started. We, I'm not sure about the exact same time, but, you know, we had two black classmates that were good friends of mine, Charlie and Cyril. And there were little things that would come up that would that made me curious, uh, but, you know, weren't too internalized because I was a little kid. You know, we called uh, Charlie up to go play play with him, and like any of my other friends. And my mom had to call his mom, which never happened. And then we had to drive across town, which never happened. And we had to wait in the car. And he ran out, which never happened. And he only came over once. I didn't really understand what that was. And I remember Cyril looking at our teacher, being all concerned. And she told him, you know, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Of course, I'd known those songs. But, I, you know, what I didn't realize was I was going to get a... You know, if that's the full meal, I was going to get an appetizer of that. In 1971, when I moved to Canada, yeah. my dad's a fisheries research scientist. He got a job up in Thunder Bay. And, you know, we moved to town and kids threw rocks at our house and yelled, Yankee, go home. They made fun of my accent. Uh, you know, a lot of my story is an immigrant story. And I'm kind of an invisible immigrant because I'm like a white guy. Mm-hmm. I look like most everybody else. But I think it was very instructional for a white guy like me to be told at a very young age that you are different and you don't belong here. So a lot of what I actually discovered writing this book is how much of my life has been motivated by trying to find places to belong uh, and how much of it is holding on to those things that make you happy when you're young. And I'll say this, you know, that the book is a bit of a parlor trick. You know, it looks like it's about one thing, but it's actually something else. And the idea is for people to go into this thing that looks fun and light and happy and appeals to, you know, an interest that is generally uh, joyful, but it's uh, sneaky in that it gets to the other things in life, that it will take you to those other things that will make you examine those things that are important. And the funny thing about hats too in that is, uh, you know, I have this hat on. People who are listening can't see it, but when you wear a hat, you look at it, then you put it on, you never see it again. Everybody else sees it. Yeah. But when you grab that hat, what you're often what you're grabbing when you look at it and consider it is the feelings and emotions that come with it, the feelings of happiness or connection. Um, so my book isn't really about the hats, it's about the stories and the connections and the feelings that come with all of them. They're symbols. They symbolize, for sure. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Caitlin, healing is messy AF. (laughs) I just don't want to put the warning on. I want everyone to hear this. We all know anyways. So Caitlin, Caitlin Keneally, Mm -hmm. she is the winner of numerous awards, including Woman of Achievement 2022, Young Professional of the Year 2021, Brains Magazine, 500 Global List 2021, so many awards, um, Woman of Vision and Courage 2012 to 20, 
2013. Mm-hmm. Now, Caitlin A. Keneally is a licensed professional counselor and holds degrees in history and women's studies, gender and women's studies, and counseling, community, and mental health. As a psychotherapist, she specializes in trauma and PTSD, domestic violence, sexual abuse, anxiety, depression, and self-esteem. She is proactively involved with many mental health services and outreach program. Her podcast, Teen (laughs) Time with the Psychos, aims to break the stigma surrounding mental illness. Caitlin, first... We have yeah. a good book designer. Your book designer is designed <laughs> covers for my book. Christy, thank Christy? you. Oh my God. She's amazing. Seriously. Yes. Yep. Yes. So Caitlin, actually this, this question is a bit for you and Craig. I'm going to ask Craig a question and then I want to get your feedback. Okay. Okay. On his answer. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Now, Craig you started sharing the Facebook posts of the hats as a result of the lockdown. That's what you were mentioning, right? In 2020 was, was that like you, you mentioned you, you talked about it earlier, but it was it your need to feel a connection with people. Cause like I said, that was why I started this podcast. I needed that connection or I thought I'm going to lose it. I think that was the result. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had done other things to try to start connections. I mean, I started two podcasts. They were generally promotional. Mm-hmm. But I started also having what I called a social ISO lunches, where I'd have lunch with people. But certainly the connection that came out of it was the real big bonus. And I'm going to give you an example of one of those connections. There's a gentleman named Jim Nottingham, who I've never met. We bonded on Facebook over objections to a distant relative of mine's political beliefs. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I won't go into those details. But, but Jim got in, Jim's a Vietnam vet. Okay. And Jim got right in, in right away sharing things. And he uh, has a lot of veterans hats. And when he shared those hats, everyone would say in our little group would say, thank you for your service. That's not something he'd heard a lot of. He, he talked about coming home from Vietnam and people literally spit on him. Um, but, you know, he got this support from this group for his experience, this appreciation. Um, when he ran out of hats, he emptied his garage to find bobbleheads and pictures, whatever it was that he could use to, to stay in the game. And when the, uh, he found, he used to make model airplanes, he found model airplanes he hadn't built yet. So when it was over, he told me that this had helped him get through the pandemic this bit of connection. He actually, he's a big Chicago White Sox fan. A box showed up and he had sent me Chicago White Sox hat that I didn't have just as a way to say thank you. So certainly the connection was a big deal, not just to myself, but to everybody who who was taking part in it. And again, you know, as both Jane and Caitlin are talked about, uh, connection is really the core of the book. You know, uh, how important are those connections and what happens when they're when they're broken? And I will say, Caitlin, uh, I, I've read both your books and enjoyed both of them. Caitlin, I don't think your book is a soft sell. I think it's in a very, I think it's a very effective sell. To be honest with you, I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think what you've done is really wonderful. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's it, uh, this is the toned down version. They made me. Do- <laughs> I said someday I'm gonna release that ebook version, which was really it was raw, it was uncut, and it was exact. Like it was it was me to the T. Um, but the, the this book is obviously me, um, but yeah. with a little bit more um, professionalism added into it. But I wanted it to be kind of in your face. And so I appreciate your feedback on that. I hope it was. Um, and that's how I am in sessions too. So I like exactly how the book is, is pretty much how I am in person. <laughs> I think it's really effective. Yeah. Your personal yeah. stories as you know, all of us will attest, they make all the difference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys agree? Because it wasn't oh, in very there much so. First. You did. Okay, thank you. Yep. That's very great. much so. Yeah, it's very, you're very real. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we've all tried to be in our stories. Yeah. I mean, it's said that a good writer shows you, a great writer tells you, but an exceptional writer helps you feel what Ooh. they're feeling as they go through that transformational journey. And I think I think that's what we've all tried to impart in our stories is, you know, this is how I was feeling. And that's probably maybe what you felt like, too. I don't know. You don't want to put words in people's mouths, but yeah, that's yeah. the sense well, that I get. I think as a clinician, right, we, or at least when we were trained, it was like, you don't talk about yourself. You don't do these things. Um, You don't talk about politics. You don't do this. So again, it felt very, a little strange, right, from a clinical perspective. And then what the pandemic did, like pre- Caitlin therapist compared to post are completely different. Like, how could you not talk about politics? How could you not talk about the things that are going on? And to me as a clinician, what the pandemic did was it really kind of put the playing field as even. I said, I had to sit with people because I stayed in person as well throughout. I made that conscious choice where a lot of people went uh, telehealth, which is totally fine. But I sat with people and I didn't have answers. And I literally was like, the best I can do is I'll see you next week. And I'm going through this with you. And it really humanized the process. And so that's what I tried to portray in the book too, is to take these, these things, make them tangible, bite sizable, and, and recognize that mental health and therapy is for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I tell you, I now look back at those three years and <laughs> there are times I'm just like, how the heck did we all make it? Right. <laughs> I just this like this this yeah okay so Mm -hmm. I had and um Jane we are coming oh we're coming (laughs) we're coming to to talk with you real yeah just a a conversation I had with my cohorts I've just finished the Simon Fraser University's writer studio and it was interesting it was fascinating because I'm probably oldest person there one of one of the oldest and so t- we had generations and um one of my fellow writers she i guess just to kind of give you uh the the picture she maybe could be late 20s early 30s and she brought up an ally mcbeal episode and she said it was the one with the baby and it was in the 90s where Allie McBeal, I guess, is having like this continuing nightmare of this little, she said it was a computer generated baby. Okay. And I never thought of this, but she said she felt that we were in the 90s so close to breaking down doors with regards to mental health. And there could have been an opportunity there with this Allie McBeal 
Beale episode. And um, like, I remember the 90s and it was some of what Craig was saying. I grew up in a time where I remember at one point, you didn't talk about divorce. Okay. Like you just, you didn't talk about these things. You know, you're supposed to, everything was fine. Right. And um, I've heard people regard therapy and you mentioned this in your book as only for crazy people. I, I just, it's, I just, people, you know, ignoring like doctor's assessments because, you know, they feel shame. So two questions. Did it take, what do you think, Caitlin? Did it take a pandemic to make it okay to discuss mental health? And do you believe we still got a long way to go? Oh, we have a long, long road ahead. Um, And that's, but I think what the pandemic did was highlight the discrepancies and the inadequacies and the gaps within our current services. um, Because the amount of people now seeking services (laughs) compared to what we can provide um, is another issue within itself. So what I think it did was it shined a spotlight on it and it needed to be shined on, right? So that we can look at it and heal and grow from here. And so truthfully, I feel if we treated mental health the way we treat physical health, right? we'd be at least moving the dial um, even further. But there's still a lot of work to do. But I have hope. I'm an eternal optimist and I just feel the shift. I mean, now since the pandemic, even within my private practice, we have a lot more men reaching out. We have a lot more kids, boys and girls. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's good and bad. And I just hope that we can all come together to move forward with it. But I think it shined a needed light on it in a way that it hasn't happened before. And what I will tell you also is generationally, we're seeing a huge shift. And so um, these younger generations are absolutely talking about it. And so I think we need to be on board and equip them with the proper tools and skills along the way while we're, you know, treating these other generations too. So I see the shift. I definitely feel it. Um, but this has been a long, long time coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. how I feel about it. Because yeah, I, I come from a generation where you're fine, right? Um, <laughs> yep. You know, everything and, and- was Perfect. Um, And like still to this day, 95% of people, this is no joke. It it cannot tell me their family history, right? Of, right? Oh, well, that aunt was like this, or this person was like that, or we don't talk about it. Now, imagine if we just treated it like physical health and we knew about the history of it and how beneficial that those two pieces of information could be in people's treatment in the sense that we're treating it along the way. We're assessing just like you get your physical every year. We'd be catching so many things because right now we're so reactive and we need to switch to a proactive approach. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, one comment I loved in your book was on the page titled Client Testimony, mm-hmm. where it's written, For the first time in my life, I feel so excited for my future and to see where my journey of self-love and validation takes me. Takes me. Yeah. And uh, you know, my I've my mentor from the SFU, she and I uh, were talking about writing and being authors. And she had said, 
do not self-reject yourself first. Do not think you're not good enough to, she goes, if Joanna, she goes, if you want to write an article for the New Yorker, go for it, pitch it. Don't Mm -hmm. think that, oh no, I'll only go for this local. She goes, there's nothing wrong with the local, but don't think, don't go in with this mindset that you're not good enough. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are, what, what are your, your thoughts, your, your thoughts on that? (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. fair. Um, Well, the first thing I want to say is that, uh, you know, those excerpts from um, those, from my patient testimonies, um, this really beautiful thing when I I do, when people graduate therapy is we write each other letters. Okay. Um, And so they get a letter, I get a letter and it, I love let right. It's narrative therapy. So we're hitting on a lot of things and they don't even realize it. Um, and so when these letters that I picked for the book, I want like, they are the ones that had the most impact on me. So this one had a big impact on me. We worked together for a long time. And so from a clinician, when we get you to that, or when we work with you and you get to that other side, it is almost indescribable. It is like magic. It's beautiful. And so this one really meant a lot to me in this relationship. And I wanted to share that obviously with their consent and with the, with the excerpts of it, but, but you're absolutely correct. I I mean, I think a lot of this, what I work with people on is cognitive distortions, right? So what is that distorted thought that you are constantly telling yourself in your head? My biggest cognitive distortion is I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. So if that's coming into play, that's what we try to work through. So if you were my patient and you said that to me and you weren't going to go for that opportunity, we would talk through some of those pieces. And I think, and then try to get you to work towards it, right, or chip away at it, and then work on that distorted thinking. And when you can, again, take these concepts and give people an answer, right? Like, okay, well, is this about that distorted thought that's in your head? Let's work through it and get them to that. That's really what healing is. And so to me, it's very regular to have those negative thoughts, right? But then we need someone to work with to help us work through that because it's not a place to live. But I would say it's more natural to have that. Um, But recognizing it and then working through it means you're already two steps into that healing process. Well, it's almost like if you self-reject yourself, you, um, you almost like eliminate the fear of someone else doing it. Because well, I've already done it, so uh, it's almost like this this shield, but it's not a shield yeah. at all. It's yeah. self sabotaging. It's a defense yeah. mechanism. You know, it's all these clinical things that then we would bring up, and again, that is kind of the framework that we would work in. Um, but yes, I, I would say it's natural, and then I'd want to know more. Well, where do you think that fear of failure came from? Right. And we try to trace back when it started. So I'm also um, EMDR trained as well. So eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's one of the most effective modalities to treat trauma, anxiety, all of those things. And so we find we find a core memory and we process that. And so that's probably something that I would try to do, too, um, and work with people through that. But yes, it's regular. Yeah. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Jane, Jane and right. All right. Jane is an inspiring and humorous thought leader, award-winning Canadian author, speaker, and wellness expert. Jane Wright Enright is a former kindergarten teacher, university lecturer, and founder of My Super Awesome Life, Inc. I love that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jane is helping audiences worldwide build resilience, find joy, 
create new beginnings, and thrive after unexpected change. Jane reveals how unexpected change can open doors, bring us joy, happiness, and excitement, offer new opportunities and experiences, usher in new love and friendships, and build faith, strength, hope, and courage that we never knew we had. Now, Jane, your book, Butterside Up. I love it. Oh, I love that. You write, tumbling toast can be a metaphor for change. Can you talk to us about tumbling <laughs> toast? And because next time I drop my toast, you know, I'm going to be thinking about you and think, okay, this is a metaphor for change. Okay. There and, you and, go. Yeah. There you yeah. go. And thank you for that lovely introduction. It, I, I, like I said, it, it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege to be in such esteemed company. You know, I'm, I'm with three very, you know, esteemed and, and wonderful authors in their own right. And I'm enjoying the conversation immensely. And uh, you're doing a wonderful job, by the way, uh, corralling us all. <laughs> it's not easy to have a conversation with, with four authors at the same time. But uh, in terms of tumbling toast, you know, there are people... I mean, basically, it's Murph, it's the Murphy Law, Murphy's Law, and um, Caitlin, you probably might speak to some of this in your book as well. It's our tendency as human beings to look for the bad rather than the good. Look at the glass half empty rather than half full. Think the worst is going to happen rather than the best is going to happen. And so, if you drop your toast and you know it lands butter side down with all icky stuff on it that nobody wants and all mucked up you know, you can either, sometimes you can salvage it, right? You can, or you, sometimes you need to start over. Five and second I, rule. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two second rule. Yeah. Dropsy, two second rule. And so, you know, I, I think of as a child dropping my ice cream, you know, my mother's saying, oh, you know, two second rule. But, um, you know, and sometimes life is like that. Like, you know, butter, the, the, to me, the tumbling toast theory is a metaphor for change. Sometimes, sometimes you need to start over. Sometimes you can salvage it, but if you can't, sometimes you got to start over. And the starting over part and the salvaging part gets more complicated. Um, I learned more so. I mean, I've, I'm also a strategic planner. So I have a unique perspective of explaining information to children in kindergarten in very small, manageable pieces, very clearly and concisely with meaning, and also looking at the outside in at other people's problems in the business world and helping them solve their problems. So like Caitlin, she's helping, she was helping people personally. I was helping people, you know, in a business perspective and sort of brought that together. But in terms of, of the the tumbling toast theory, it, it really is about looking at your life and saying, okay, if, if, if we accept that things happen, if we expect the unexpected is going to happen, it really helps change our mindset and it opens ourselves up to being more receptive to change rather than the fear factor of fearing it. And if we accept the four, stuff with four letters ending in a T happens to all of us, sometimes we don't know what it's going to be like. Craig, you talked about arriving in Thunder Bay, of all places, Thunder Bay, and somebody yelling at you for being American. Like, who would expect that? Who would expect that I would get slammed in the head with a volleyball at a sporting event and have to learn how to talk again? You know, those are those are things that were totally unexpected things, but out of those things, it was how we chose to respond to it. 
rather than react to it. So the doubling toast theory is that, yeah, life life can be pretty up and down and, and life is not always a straight and narrow, but it, positivity and thinking more positively about things. And you know what, if my toast lands, you know, I, I'm butter side down, I think I'll be okay because I can find a way out of this. And that's what my grandmother used to say. She used to say, yo, I hope you land butter side up on that one. So you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's not rose colored glasses or glossing it over. It's just the acceptance that, Hey, life has changed, changes life and life has changed. And, um, you know, when I had my three things, my 365 days of being in the batter's cage, you know, at that Detroit Tigers game and saying, what the hell is going to happen next? I don't know, you know, what the next five minutes is going to bring. I got to make sense of it all. I think that it brought me to a place where, I would I be I had to become more accepting of change. I had to change. I had to accept that that life isn't going to always be perfect and and that you can overcome things, but you have to have some tools in the toolkit to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. And posit and looking at things more positively than negatively, it's not toxic po- toxic positivity. Rather, it's emergency preparedness for our minds. It's it's taking that that stepping back that I call it my OMG in the book outside and thinking mindfulness, gratitude, and just taking a step back and keeping yourself out of the weeds of overthinking and that overthinking mind, you know, that we've talked about in all of our writing and saying, okay, you know, if I step back and I look at this and I do a bit of a scan here, what's good, what's not so good, what's the upside? There's a great movie too. There was a great movie at TIFF a couple years ago. Did did you ever see The Upside? I think it was with Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. And it, it's a it's a wonderful film. And again, it's all about a man who's a quadriplegic and how he meets this guy who's out getting out of prison and needs a job. And again, it's a wonderful metaphor for life. Like it's two very unlikely people, you know, one from an ultra rich background and one from an ultra not so rich background that come together and find common ground and uh, help each other through, through a tough time. So anyway, I hope I haven't droned on, but that's. No, no, <laughs> not at all. No. So in your chapter one, a butter side up, like I say, the three of you, <laughs> It's going through. I like I said, I had them all lined up. Every book, you know, on my second monitor opened up, and I'd be going from one book to the next book. And it's not that your books are all sad, but you have these moments where I just I was like, God, you know, when I I'd have this lump in my throat. So with butter side up, Jane, can you explain about Mister C asking if you are a nurse? That scene. And that's true. It's all true. The, there's there was no embellishment. Uh, wrote from the heart, and uh, yeah. So chapter one. Why does my head hurt so much? So you know, I'm in room fourteen, the one with the window, and um, you know, Mr. C isn't doing so well because I, you know, I explained to the reader that Mr. C has had a had a car accident and a subsequent fall, and his brain has ricocheted to the left and the right in his head. And had that, you know, um, bleed in the brain been a millimeter to the left of his brainstem, he would be on a ventilator right now. And I'm explaining it to you. And then he, you know, he looks at me, Mr. C looks at me very earnestly, you know, with his kind, twinkly blue eyes and says, you know, 
I can't remember who anyone is here, but you're the nicest and the prettiest. Now, this is a real story, a real scene out of my storyline of my life with the main character, who um, is my former fiance and 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 partner, and said, I can't remember who anyone is here, but you're the nicest and the prettiest. So Mr. C woke up from that catastrophic brain injury, not remembering who he is, nor remembering who I am. Now, you know, and trying to explain to Mr. C, you know, who he is now, you know, guess what? I'm Jane, you know, I'm not a nurse. I'm your spouse. I'm, I'm your partner. I'm your fiance. Mm -hmm. So the way I explain it to him, because I, I I talk to people now about trauma and going through loss. Imagine waking up and not knowing who you are and not knowing what you are, whether, where you work, where you live, if you have children, where you, what your address is, but imagine you're totally dependent on another human being and you're in a hospital and no one knows who you are either. But there's one lady, thankfully, that does by the bedside. And that was me. And I thankfully was with him during that journey. And I still am, by the way, he's in the next room working, Aww. which is super <laughs> awesome. And, but, you know, I talk about it's your thinking mind. Like when your brain, when you have a catastrophic brain injury, it's not necessarily you that's lost. It's your ability to think. And Caitlin, you'll know more about this being a oh, therapist than I'm not a therapist. Good. You're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> and I talk about the feeling. So the feeling that Mr. C had was that, hey, you're okay. You, I'm feeling good when I'm around you. I think you're a good person boy, you're pretty. I like you, you know, all that good stuff. Cause you make me, you know, you know, you make me feel good. That's our, that's our heart. Right. So that's a little bit about butter side up. It's balancing when you can't find your thinking mind all the time is balancing your, 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 your heart and your head. So that was the, that's the introduction for the reader about the importance of using both our intuitive side and our our thinking side, because he lost all ability to do that. I mean, he was pleasant about it, you know, and he's because I'm scrolling through the iPhone, I'm saying, well, here, look at, look at, this is where we live. This is our house. This is, Mm -hmm. this is, this is you, this is us. This is, we got engaged. Look at, we went to France together. He's looking at me blankly like, okay. And then he looks at me and says, I live there with you. I must be a lucky son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. it's a great reveal. It's a great yeah. reveal in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what he said. And thank goodness he said it that way. Cause I started to cry. And I mean, yeah. I get very emotional still talking about it because in that hospital room, boy, that's a scary moment. Yeah. And, and that's after I got hit in the head. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like, Holy jeez. Yeah. You know? So anyway, it was, um, yeah, so it was a very powerful moment in my life. And I I really, um, that's where I really advocate. And now I'm actually working with a foundation called Brain Canada that does tremendous brain research um, all across Canada. I'm very, very fortunate and blessed to be working with them. And it's, it's, it's not just our thinking mind, it's our intuitive sense that we, Mm -hmm. we need to help pay attention to so that can get us through some tough times so it's that gut right when you said yeah. your stomach yep. flip-flops before some it was telling you something yeah. don't ignore your intuition if something mm-hmm. feels good that's a good thing but if something doesn't feel good you know what don't do it yeah. <laughs> yeah. don't ignore it 
Don't ignore yeah. it. Well, I'm just thinking of, of what we're coming up with with when with Craig's story too. So, but I'm, I'm not quite there yet. Yeah. Um. Now, Jane, there, there was even you had a little humor in this in this in, in another scene where Mr. C he asks you, "Do we live together?" Yeah. You know, and you say, yes, we live together. Then he asks, do we sleep together? Yeah. And you say, yes, we sleep together. And then I love it because you write, he pauses. Do our parents know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you oh, yeah. say. It's all true. All true. You oh, you couldn't remember a thing. I thought, I thought, and, and you know, that's when your ego, we're talking about oh. our brains and our minds. That's when my ego, like if I had a big ego, if I hadn't been in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. You could get really upset about that. You know, what do you mean? What do you mean? You don't remember who I am. I sleep with you. Come on. (laughs) Well, (laughs) come on. Well, your comment of, you know, when he asks, do our parents know? And you say that we live together or that we sleep together. Like I just, I chuckled. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But those, that was a real moment, you uh, know, and uh, you know, your parents are deceased. I had to, I had to remind him and even, and that's the thing that just was so gobsmacking about the whole experience is that it's called, now I, I know the, the medical term, it's called post-traumatic amnesia, but that amnesia lasted for day, hundreds of days and still today lasted, you know, some re, in some respects, but he was, he was able to recover to a, an incredible level of, of reconditioning. But again, it's not without work and support and advocacy from a lot of other people, not just me, a lot of other wonderful people. But uh, yeah, I mean, just not being able to remember what, not even just what you did yesterday, but your whole life. Yeah. Well, how old am I? Yeah. How old are you? And this is, this is a true story. And this is where it's so important to be, you know, COVID has been such a wake up call and, and Craig, does this beautifully too. And and so does Caitlin about helping us understand the importance of what is important to you. And that's, that's what my most terrible year was. It was a real wake up call. Not that I wasn't grateful before, but a real reminder every single day that life is a gift and what's important to you. Does it matter that the dishes aren't done today? No, those aren't the things that matter. Does it matter that I can have a meaningful conversation with someone I love, even if they don't remember me. And also taught me a lot more about people that are suffering from Alzheimer's or early onset dementia and mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, that was the upside of all this. You know, mm-hmm. Mr. C was a test case. I mean, I said, if I could have bottled your brain, you were mindful every single day. It was like, you know, I'd walk into the room. It's like, oh, you're back. <laughs> The first two weeks, I had to remind him who I was. Yeah. What's your name again? Oh yeah, you're Jane. Oh yeah, that's a, oh, I live with you. <laughs> I sleep. I slept with you. <laughs> I don't sleep my with parents, you now because I'm in this hospital. My parents approved of it. <laughs> my parents approved of it. It's that was that joy of oh my gosh, you're back. And yeah. you know what? It was just it was it's too funny. And so now, Mr. C and I, boy we have a super awesome life. We do. Our life is different, yeah. but it's, it's very much in the moment. It's very much, Hey, 
it's a sunny day. No, the dishes aren't done. The laundry's not done. The house isn't clean. You know, who the heck cares? We're, we're going, we're, you know, we're going out. We're going to do, do and see things that we should be doing and that are important to us. Well, I liked how you explained it as it's like a filing cabinet has fallen over and the contents have spilled on the floor. Yeah. Sometimes all the files do not get put back in the right place. And just, and you say that is what happened to Mr. C. So be thankful for your memory, right? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And I think too, and that's the stigma of mental illness, I think, because Mr. C, he wasn't mentally ill. He was cognitively impaired. And I think oftentimes, whether it's mental illness or cognitive impairment, people get labeled as something like, oh, you're not talking. You're not making sense. You're not, wow, you're hearing voices. What do you mean you're hearing voices? What, you know, like, I think there's, there's so much stigma and so many labels out there that we must remember as a society, we're measured about how we treat our most vulnerable populations. Mm. And mental health is so, so important because our mental health, our mental health is everything. It's, and even if we're not, even if we're not feeling ourselves for whatever reason, whether it may be injury or maybe a, you know, cognitive, maybe birth, something developmental, it doesn't mean that you don't matter. It doesn't mean that you can't contribute. It doesn't mean that you can't recover. And I've worked with a lot of kids with special needs over the years. And I've worked, obviously, I've had this experience with my partner where he was in the hospital for over 100 days. And two years of care afterwards. So that's a long journey. And I'm not saying it was easy. And there was, you know, in the book, I talk about the ups and downs and stuff, but it really, um, it really reminds, it reminded me about the importance of treating our most vulnerable populations with kindness. Kindness is the highest wisdom. And that's what I really wanted people to get from the book is that, you know what, bad stuff happens to all of us, but you know what, there's kind people out there. There can be good things that come from not so good things. And I'm proof in the pudding. Like, look at me, I'm talking to you now. I never would have met you. I I probably never would have met Craig or Caitlin or heard their stories or yours and been on your program or won an award or had this journey as an author. And that's, that's the meaning of it. You yeah. know, it's, it's finding the meaning of it. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking of Craig's book. Uh, there are the, the, the hats are physical reminders of the happy, the heart wrenching, the scary times. And so Craig, I really want you to share your time around the Toronto Maple Leafs hat, just given what we've just been discussing with Jane and the situation behind that Toronto Maple Leafs hat that brought tears to my eyes. So I'm going to make sure I keep it together while you talk about this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can promise the same thing, Okay, uh, but I'll do my best. And just yeah. to, to give the context to, to the hat and the significance of the hat, uh, part of what I had held on to from my days in Michigan was allegiance to Detroit sports teams. And the Detroit Red Wings were 
one of them. I went to school in university at the University of Windsor. So when I really started watching hockey, it was at Red Wings games and they were terrible. I remember going to a game and they lost, they, the opposing team had scored four goals in the first eight shots on net and the uh, fans booed the attendance. They booed themselves for coming. So <laughs> I've never seen it before or since. So when they got good, it, it meant a lot to me. Uh, so just keep that in your pocket for this next part because uh, it's going to seem unrelated, but it will be related very quickly. Uh, in 2019, on December 3rd, my son was in the hospital for what they thought was viral meningitis. He, uh, he'd he had a cold that kept getting worse and he'd always had a high pain threshold, but we got him in the hospital and uh, it was a hospital in my neighborhood. I'm not going to name it, but uh, he wasn't doing well. Um, but we thought it was viral meningitis and it would pass in order to any MRIs or anything or CAT scans or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, I'm freelance producer. I got work. So I'm working on a script in the room watching his bed. And I heard him moan. So I got up and said, do you want some water? And he made a noise and I gave him some water. And when he, when he went down his throat, he gurgled. And I said, are you, are you choking? And when he answered, uh, only the left side of his face moved. And I looked into his eyes and I could see him falling away from me. I knew something was bad. I, I thought I was losing. And my son was always funny and quirky and the kid who would go to the playground and say, who wants to play with me and invent his own games. And I, in that moment, I wondered if I would ever see that boy again. I ran outside and I called the nurse and the surgeon and the surgeon, the head of pediatrics came in and said, I think he's having a stroke. And then nothing happened. You'd expect the room to fill up and people would be there. It just didn't happen. I was in there alone with them and, I, and I'm coming apart, literally coming apart. Went out and asked them for a few minutes. I don't know how long. Said, And I was as calm as I could be, and I, which was calm. I said, look, I understand that uh, this is a busy place and there are things going on. I don't understand why you're not doing anything for my son. They said, we are doing something. We're arranging for a transfer to Sick Kids Hospital. I called my work and told what was going on. I called my wife to let her know what to expect. And, uh, you know, the ambulance came and I, I was apart. I was coming apart. I was bawling. Um, my wife came in and she was dead calm. Um, and she was calling because my son's, one of my son's good friend, Ethan had died of cancer the year before, you know, like a week before his 13th birthday and her thought process, she told me later, look, he's still alive. I couldn't believe how calm she was calm and cheerful. Like, do you understand the gravity of the situation? Um, she did, but she was in control. Um, they came, they took him to the ambulance because I wasn't in control. I didn't go in the ambulance. I drove down to the hospital. Anyway, we walked into sick kids and I'll tell you the difference. It was like walking to the ocean and having that ocean air hit your face. It was that different, tangible walking in. There were surgeons walking up saying, uh, you know, there were, uh, I'm Dr. Ahmed, uh, we're putting in the stroke protocol. That's great. That means we'll get into a CAT scan right away. Another one came up and just, just talked to us, right? There was a surgeon there neurologist just handling us as we went through this 
And, you know, they walked us through the process. They He had braces. They had to cut the braces out of his head with pliers. Um, you know, it was traumatic. And also one of the doctors said to me that, look, to get these medications in, the anti-stroke medications in, it's got to be within four hours or they may not work. And I looked and we're trying to get him into the CAT scan. And it's like, I said, look, I noticed this at 7, at 3.30. And it's 7 o'clock. And we're filling out forms so my wife can go sit him. Like, time's not our friend here, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the doctor looked at the administrator and nodded. And so they got him in. And my wife went in with him. And I just sat in this waiting room and came apart again. There's all these families in the front of the thing. And I'm like a mess, just a mess. They came out and they said that it's not a stroke. Uh, some fluids from a, from a sinus infection had leaked into his brain. And that they could take it out tonight. That would be fine. It was, you know, yay, my son's going to have brain surgery. Yay. <laughs> right? So we go in and there's a, a resident who was there from Germany. And she came up to us and she said, uh, look, we don't have to penetrate the brain. We just have to wash it out. It's going to be a long recovery, but he's going to be okay. And I immediately, I calmed down. And we had to decide who was going to stay with Shane and who was going to go home and take care of our youngest son, Curtis, because Nancy was much more controlled than I was. We decided that she was the one who should be there in case a big decision had to be made. So I went home with Curtis. Next day, we went and he had a tube down his throat. His left side can still move. So he can squeeze our hand and let us know it's okay. So I know, and, and I wasn't sure who was in there still, but he could... My son was always, if you put her arm around his back, he put his arm around her. It's reciprocal. So I was rubbing his hand with my thumb and he rubbed his hand with my hand with his finger. So I knew that he was still in there. That night they took out the tube. He could start moving his uh, right side a little bit overnight. And the next day I came in and before I was coming in, you know, Nancy and I were in different shifts. Nancy said, the Toronto Maple Leafs are coming today. And my response was, Internally, who cares? I could care less about the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, I've worked in sports at TSN for five years. Uh, you know, is Shane coherent? You know, he could move a little bit last night. Can he talk? Uh, would he even be lucid if they came in? So I brought in my boys' hockey jerseys. Uh, they played select hockey. I brought in their jerseys just to take a picture with the least could take a picture of what they wanted. And uh, Alexis, the woman, took the uh, jerseys with her. And I, you know, said we can't promise anything. Whatever you can do is fine. It's fine. Later that afternoon, uh, someone comes into our room. We're in the ICU and says, the Toronto Maple Leafs are coming to see Shane. Well, you know, I didn't expect it. And I ran over to Shane, who could talk a little bit. He could speak in little sentences. And his head was drooped over. And his face was swollen because they'd basically almost taken off half his face to fix him. His eyes were swollen. He could barely lift his head. His eyes were swollen shut. I said, the Maple Leafs are coming to see you. And he went, gosh. And I said, do you want this? And he said, yes. So the nurse and I swung the door around to the bed because you only have two people in the ICU. They couldn't come in the room. And just got him around. And the nurse is fighting off another nurse trying to take a blood sample. <laughs> so uh, I looked down the hall and down the hall and their beautiful blue jerseys are four, four Toronto Maple Leafs, Frederick Anderson, Kasperi Kapanen, Travis Derman, and Zach Hyman. And they come down and, you know, it's like rock stars walking in, right? Uh, they come in and uh, 
They look into the room to see Shane, and Shane, who could barely move, could barely talk, whips up his head, pulls it upright, pries open his eyes. And they say, hi. And he says, hi. And they say, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing all right. And then he gave them a thumbs up with his right hand that he couldn't move 12 hours ago. I, I'm speechless. Yeah. You can't even talk. Uh, and I know, to say, I know to say thank you. And I, can't, I nothing comes out of my mouth, right? I just croak it out. Zach Hyman pats me in there and we take pictures with the jerseys together, an individual. They hand me a gift bag for both of them. And then they, they go. And Alexis had told me she'd never seen a reaction like that in the 17 years she'd done this. Um, and, you know, I was a Maple Leaf fan. Yeah. And I never thought I would be. I never thought I belonged to that tribe. But, you know, I went home and bought this Maple Leafs hat on, the, on my way home. And the next game I watched uh, that they played and cheered for them. And it was against the Red Wings. And, you know, if it, if it had, you know, Shane got much better after that. He was doing really well. But also the, you know, the Maple Leafs, it didn't end there. You know, they looked after, they, they looked after us. Yeah. He met Austin Matthews. He got to ask Austin Matthews a question at this thing. I asked Austin Matthews is a hot dog, a sandwich, greatest Maple Leafs generation. That's the question he asked him. Austin Matthews loved us. They gave us tickets to a Leaf game. We went down there to meet the coach. Shane got sick. They brought him back. They gave him a jersey. They took us to a Raptors game. Like they really took care of us. And you talk about kindness, Jane. You talked about the importance of that. Um, in the sick kids, every place in the world should be like sick kids. Yeah. And yeah. kindness is the best virus in the world. Because once you put it out there, it can spread around like anything else. And the value of kindness there, not just to shame, but to us, and to everybody, uh, you know, that's the stuff that changes your life. That's the stuff that changes your life. You talk about managing change. I know I'm going on a long time here to take away from your time, but uh, you know, the, both of the things that both of you have talked about, you know, managing change, you know, what I've had to figure out in the, in the hospital was looking back, I hadn't done any work in mindfulness, but I knew looking back was scary and looking forward made us anxious, made me anxious. So I just had to be in that moment with him because he was in the hospital and he was safe and we were okay. Um, but one day at a time. Just the one moment at a time. Let's do what we have to do right now. And when the yeah. pandemic came, you know, that stuff helped us a lot. It, I think we were really well armed for it better than anyone else was because we've known what it's like to live through uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, if you can make this moment okay, you're doing all right. Anyway, so now I'm a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. I never <laughs> thought I would be, but uh, I don't care if they ever win a first round playoff game again or even a game again. You know, it really is wonderful to know that the people you want to be the good guys are the good guys. Yeah. 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 So, Caitlin, yeah, just with the thing that got me was what Craig said about one moment at a time. Is that mm. what, something that? Yeah, absolutely. I call it like kind of chipping away at things. And what I try to teach people is let, let's invest in ourselves 1% every day. So your 1% could have just been showing up at my office today. We'll take that, right? Uh, and your 1% tomorrow, you get to decide. And so slowly but surely, after a couple of days, you're like, okay, well, if you do it for a week, you've done seven things. 
You do it for two weeks, you've done 14 things. And so I try to take that, um, again, that concept and chip away and, you know, the mindfulness thing and being present moment. I mean, that's all DBT is, right? People are like, what? DBT? Dialectical Behavioral Therapy? They don't really care about the title of it. They're like, what can you give me that's tangible and practical, right? Um, And with Craig's story, you know, that's a lot of hope. And same with Jane's too. And that's something that we need within healing. That's an ingredient that we need to get to. Um, but that we might not have right away. So how can we find that um, is how I would answer that. Well, I know after the pandemic, I have said to my critique partner, I go, it was after the pandemic. I said, I don't feel sometimes like that confident government employee pre-pandemic who used to march to work every day. And I said, I think that has something to do with the pandemic, right? And change and new things. This little story is nowhere near or should be is even on the scale of what Craig and Jane has shared. But you're talking about just chipping each little bit. Mm -hmm. I got a scooter. Okay. I I got a scooter. (laughs) Okay. Little green Giorno Honda made scooter. (laughs) I have a helmet. Super excited. Well, once I got the scooter and started telling people, some people were really happy for me. And then other people were telling me every accident they had heard of. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it started to get to me. Like my confidence started to, you know, like shrink. And uh, it was my spouse. He said, Joe, you've got this. You've got this. Just do whatever you want. Just like go out and practice as little or as much as you want. And, you know, those words, you've got this. Just it, it's like, yeah, yeah, I've got this. You know, I don't care if I look like I'm 10 and I'm going around the neighborhood 10 times mm-hmm. on that scooter. <laughs> if that's mm-hmm. what helps me feel confident, you know, mm-hmm. then that's what I'm doing. And it like the big one for me was actually putting gas for the first time in this thing, right? Okay. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yes. I, I got to admit, I felt pretty cool because I had looked ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled up at the gas station. I remember two guys in trucks came and they're just kind of looking over and I thought, I got this. Watch this. (laughs) I just take the cap off here and (laughs) (laughs) it only cost me six bucks (laughs) to fill the tank. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And so what I would say is if we were working together, what you're doing is inner child work and you're playing. And from uh, as we age and grow older, we forget how important play is and connecting um, to ourselves. Right. Um, And then that other piece is everybody's always going to throw information at you, good, bad or ugly. Right. And then we have to decide what is worthy within that um, and navigate through some of those things. So. Okay. Okay. It's good. So the. What my son Shane would say is, you have to put up with all the bad stuff in your life. You know, you should enjoy Mm -hmm. the stuff that makes you happy as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So then Mm -hmm. for also your own uh, Mm self-preservation, because I know you talk about toxic toxicity toxicity okay ambulance and spaghetti uh, were the words. Okay. Toxic people, let's say that. Just Mm -hmm. identifying toxic individuals 
and kind of keeping your distance? Is that something you would also? Sure. So um, when I'm working with people, you know, a a huge thing that I like to discuss is boundaries. Okay. Um, And a lot of times people have porous boundaries when they're coming to see me. Okay. And so they don't necessarily know how to navigate that. And when we're on that healing journey, and in my book, one of the activities I ask people to do, it's called picking a lane. And picking your lane is really your bubble of control. And as you start to heal, your lane is going to get healthier, it's going to get better, you're adding more skills, you're not bringing in the trash from last year, or, you know, the fight from the decade ago, you know, we're focusing on these things. So your relationships along with yourself are going to change and you are going to notice more toxic behaviors that you once accepted because you were probably doing some of those things too. So it's kind of about the energy or the frequency of healing that you're on. And um, we have to own our own toxic or unhealthy traits that we've had. And once we start doing that, we start to notice them in other people as well. Um, good, bad, or ugly. So I think it's always existed, but our level of consciousness or our level of healing wasn't where it is or where it's going. So we might not have been aware of it before, but there's things in place about learning boundaries, assertiveness, healing that can help you navigate um, some of those dynamics as you start to heal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can't have this podcast without talking about another topic you bring up in your book, and that is sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Now, I worked at the prosecutor's office. I was a Supreme Court assistant. So every, the files I received were the murders, the stabbings, the sexual assaults, the Mm B&Es causing assault, all of those. All right. Um, And I remember a coworker of mine, actually best friend, again, my critique partner now, Carol Ann, we had this discussion and it was, God forbid, if anyone really, really close to us was sexually assaulted and they asked our advice, would we tell them to go through the criminal justice system? Because through the criminal justice system, that victim, I think, is the one who is put on trial or whether we would recommend that that victim go and spend their time getting counseling and trying to heal. What do you think about that? What do you think about that statement? Because I swear I, those cases, when you get up to that level of court, it can drag on for a year or more mm-hmm. and it's brutal. It is brutal yeah. for that victim. So, so what's your, yeah. what's your, well, I think the fact that you even have to ask that question yeah. is telling within itself, right? The yeah. systems that we have in play are not conducive. You know, we're trying to take a trauma informed approach to a lot of these things now. And the way it's set up is not trauma informed because what you're talking about is that it re victimizes, re victimizes, yeah. re victimizes, and it carries on for a long period of time. They have to keep retelling, retelling their story. And so I talk about this in the book and what I say is that what always really resonated with me was when one of my teenagers said it was worse after I told it was easier for me to keep the secret. Like, do you know how awful that is to to, that, that statements even coming out because they're already recognizing that the system is not working for them. So what I would say is the current system that we have in play is not 
trauma-informed and is not conducive for people to share their stories in a way um, that is healing. Um, And so I think there needs to be, again, um, a a, a look at how we do that and how we classify these things um, and how we go about it. So (laughs) what you're saying is what I deal with a lot. Um, And again, I think the statement within itself is telling and that we need change within that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to re-victimize the victim. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, yep. and um, I think too we've all. I mean, that's again, you know, kindness is the highest wisdom. You know, yeah. things need to change for the better, and hopefully they will. Hopefully they will with with people that have had the firsthand experience and knowledge and the and the professional skills that someone like you have, Caitlin, and others yep. that you know. Well, and part of why I do, you know, I never want to make things about me. But what I say is I've been where you've been sitting, right? I know what this feels like on a personal level. And I want people to know that you can come out the other side and look how I've done it. But you don't have to do it my way. But I'm here to help guide you. And again, I think that that personal connectedness is, you know, really plays into a lot as to why I am a good clinician um, and why people resonate with me and why they've resonated with my story. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thinking of kindness, uh, Jane, I liked what uh, the Dr. MacArthur said to you, um, I, and I like how you referred to it as you still felt that you were the CEO of everything, yes. <laughs> managing everything, yeah. and it was Dr. MacArthur, he talks to you about keeping the tank in your brain filled, not on empty. Yes. I'm just going to, I've just thought of my own little metaphor, filling up my little scooter with gas. So is your tank filled? Are you keeping your tank filled? Uh, Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And and thank you for bringing that to light because I think oftentimes, you know, we have roles in our life. You know, we may be a parent, we may be a spouse, we may be a partner, we may be a sister, brother, caregiver, caretaker, you know, employee, whatever. And when you do have trauma in your life, for whatever reason, whether it's not your own trauma, but you're experiencing trauma as a family, as as Craig did, or, you know, Caitlin, or, you know, or me or whatever, it's often challenging to remember to take care of yourself. So that's a big that is a big factor in my life. I, I've been very fortunate that, I, and it hasn't been easy sometimes, but I have made a great recovery from my, both my injury and the trauma of witnessing and being part of another traumatic brain injury with my partner. And then my subsequent, my friends, you know, um, untimely uh, passing in, in, you know, my life. But again, I work very hard to have balance you know, and, and someone said to me once um, that we're all on this journey of healing in our lives. We're all trying to make sense of it all and, and the meaning that comes from that. And it's not just the years in our life, it's the life in our years. So that's the way I try and look at my life now. I try and look at filling my tank and, and having a balance. And I call it my OMG. I'm I'm saying very similar things to what you know, my, my colleagues here and you are saying as well, but maybe saying it a little differently, like OMG for me is outside in thinking, big picture thinking, mindfulness and gratitude. So each day I try and be mindful. I have a very specific routine when I wake up, wherever I'm traveling, wherever I may be. First of all, I'm grateful. I wake up with gratitude. 
and um, I meditate and I say some positive affirmations and that really works for me. That's how I fill up my tank. And that's how I start the positive self-talk of the day um, rather than letting the negativity, you know, that comes into our lives. And I'm also very careful. I live very intentionally and purposely. So part of the way I fill my tank is I'm very careful about who I spend my time with. You know, I can't control the weather and I can't control if there's a pandemic or whether some, I can't control another person's behavior, but I, I can respond and control how I spend my time to a certain extent. So that's how I keep my, my tank filled, like playing golf. You know, I love to play golf, love to ski, love to do yoga, love to spend time with my family, love to travel. And, you know, things aren't, necessarily as important as they were maybe pre most terrible year it's those experiences and and it's how i'm spending my time each day so excellent so i'm going to just wrap this up a bit i'm going to mention certain ideas that jumped out at me from each book which i believe are important for our listeners to hear so caitlin let's start with you trauma tree and planting mm-hmm. seeds daily. I loved that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the trauma chapter is really rich. And I'm actually working on my second book. And it's an extension of the trauma chapter that I have in this one. Um, and so the tree has been really beneficial for people to learn, right? Because like I said earlier, most people don't know about their family history. So, you know, we it's nice when we can talk about the genetic component versus the environmental component and see the roots and how things have come together. And then planting seeds, again, is that 1% is that metaphor that I use very often. Let's take these concepts, let's chip away at it just a little bit. And, you know, I also say, you know, let's your garden of healing, right? If you have a plant and you just go and you just put it in there, you don't expect it to grow overnight. What do you do? You nourish the soil, you make sure it has good light, you do all these other things. Or if you're like me, you can't keep a plant alive. So I shouldn't <laughs> use that metaphor, right? Um, <laughs> good thing my patients aren't plants. Um, and so and so really, again, I, I asked them, well, are you going to throw out the whole garden or are we just going to adjust this row? Are okay. you going to, you know, move this or do those pieces? And so, again, um, it makes them recognize that their healing is not linear and that we can work through some of these pieces, these obstacles that we run into. And sometimes it might just be that your plant needs some water. I don't know. Right. Oh, <laughs> or I it could that. be much more complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'd love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Craig, Brooklyn Dodgers hat. And I, ha- I, love this, I love this quote. If you hold a dime right in front of your eye, it looks huge. That small coin can block out the world. If you hold it at arm's length from your face, that dime looks tiny. Your thoughts? Well, what that's really about is... Uh what the world does to you and then what you do to yourself. You know, bad things are going to happen to all of us. Jane and Caitlin talk about that in their books and are really brave about sharing it. Um, and, you know, for, for each of us, it becomes a point about, um, you know, how big is this problem really? At what point is this doing it to me? And at what point is my obsessing about it doing it to myself? Uh, you You have to give these things that happen to you the attention they deserve and not just the the bad ones the good ones too right you have to give them the, the attention they deserve but especially the bad ones you can't give them more to that or at that point you're starting to do it to yourself so and that takes 
you know, I think Jane calls it outside in, you know, thinking mm -hmm. I, I, for me, that's just, you know, sitting back and considering it uh, and really making a value judgment on, you know, on what this is. And both Caitlin and Jane have talked about what can you do about it? So, you know, what can I do? What can I do about it? Um, how do I control myself in this situation? But really, you know, is this a dime or is it something that should block out the world? Um, and sometimes they do block out the world for a while. You yeah. still have to deal with those. But that's really what that's about, is what the world does to you and what you choose to do to yourself with it. Awesome. God, I feel good. Okay. Okay, Jane, last one. Like all of, like I say, all of you, your books. You know, I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, they are award-winning. Definitely. I, I see why they are award-winning. So Jane, reading from your book, um, just thinking of some of the negativity I've I've seen with respect to being an author, you know, like going going for that dream, okay? And the what what so much resonated with all your books for you, this sentence, faith is believing in miracles when logic tells you that you should not. Your thoughts mm -hmm. on your thoughts. Well, I, again, it's it's the it's believing it's believing that good things can happen. And I I think with Craig, you know, I don't know what Caitlin, your experience has been, you know, with others, but Craig, you know, your story really resonates with me when you talked about your son and raising his thumb, and that's never you said doctor said it couldn't be done. Like, wow, why is that happening? You know what? Sometimes we can't explain things. I can't explain why Clayton woke up. Mr. C woke up and couldn't remember who he was. I can explain it medically, but I still can't explain why he would understand that I was, he was drawn to me. It's again, it's our heart. It's the feelings. It's our intuitive side. And that quote is actually from Miracle on 34th Street. And, and, and the Santa Claus theory. So whether you believe in Santa or whether you celebrate Christmas, it's the believing that there is, there are, are other forces out there that are good and that there's good everywhere and that good things can happen. We just have to believe, you know, and I really do believe like Louise Hay, that if you put the power of your mind and that, you know what, we're going to get through this. I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to get through this. Good things can happen. I said to the universe at the end of my most terrible year, I'm tired of hard and sad. I want a super awesome life. I'm not doing this anymore. That gave my mind the freedom to free myself from the past and say the past is just a chapter, not the whole book. I can move forward. I can have happy things happen. Happiness and joy can happen for me, even if it's been you know, some tough times here. So it's all about the power of believing and uh, not in a schmaltzy way or a artificial way or, or, a, or a false positive way. It's just about, you know what, there's kind people out there. There's helpers along the way. There's people out there that if you say, you know what, today's going to be a good day. When you look for the good, good things happen. So, yeah. Yeah. well, that, that's so true because my last last comment and i'll let you guys go you've been with me this has been i am so pumped okay <laughs> um for me an example of that is deciding to launch 
what I'm, it's being called SAM magazine. So, Mm -hmm. okay, the acronym, I wanted it SAM because I thought I didn't, I didn't want anyone to think whether you had to be a boy or you had to be a girl, you could be Sam, you could think of it as Samantha, it could be short, whatever, right? And actually, for me, it stands for scooters, authors, artists, motorcycles, okay? <laughs> That's my own personal, okay, meaning to it. But I I had this doubt about launching this magazine. And for like three, four weeks, I thought about it. And I'd go to bed at night thinking, no, it's not a good idea. I'd wake up the next morning. Yeah, it's a good idea. And I did this back and forth. And then finally, when I said, yeah, I'm doing it, and I contacted other authors, they were like so on board and so encouraging. And then I had, I'm going to get emotional here. I had so many offers of help, right? Of proofreaders, of let me know what we can do. And it's, I just thought, wow, you, I think I'm onto something here. I think this will be well-received, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, this isn't about me. This is Mm -hmm. about the three of you and your success, however you define your success. All of you have touched me with your books, and that's why I'm so glad I got this chance to interview you. I'm just thinking of my listeners, and I, I, this has been... Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, really, Joanna, you have, you've done a masterful job and Mm -hmm. I, we really have to give a shout out to the Canadian book club awards because what a gift, Mm -hmm. what a gift for Canadian authors. I mean, it's been a gift obviously for all of us um, to share our stories and, and become you know, you know, share our gifts with others. But also, I think it's an incredible platform for Canadian authors, and to 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 find out and support Canadian authors. So a big shout out to them too, for bringing us together and to you, because you really have taken heart and soul, you've t- taken time to look into all of our stories and really get to know mm-hmm. us on a on both a personal and professional level. So thank you for that. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I told you, well, I told you I was not going to ask you what your zodiac sign was. That's not the type of podcast in my own. Next episode. Yeah. Okay, guys. I want to be. I want to meet in person. I, I think yeah. we should all meet That'd in person great. someday because this has been a very powerful experience.